And would the the rest of you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Okay. Let's start by reading the text together. Verses 1 through 17. It says this, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out, thrown into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Three accounts of healing, and we covered one of them last week. And so we'll continue with the account of the centurion's servant and Peter's mother-in-law. But at the beginning of the sermon last week, I stated some facts about sickness that we need to all embrace and remember. First of all, sickness is inevitable. It's part of living on this earth. Everybody faces sickness. It touches all of our lives in unique ways. Everybody gets sick. The second thing is that sickness is destructive. It's, it's deadly even. Some sicknesses are worse than others, but we have not gotten rid of the fact that some sicknesses are terminal and leads to death. Finally, sickness is a consequence of sin. Maybe it's not a result of personal sin in your own life, but it is always a result of the original sin, the fall. Sickness is part of the consequence of the curse, pain and death is because of sin, Adam's sin, that has been passed down to all of us. So sickness touches all of our lives, and if you're, uh, is a reminder for all of us that we're all weak, we're all broken, and we're ultimately powerless because of sin 
We need salvation. We need a Savior outside of ourselves that is both willing and able to cleanse us. Not dealing just with external symptoms, but rooting out the sin that is birthed in our hearts. The questions we ask, the question we ask when we come to these accounts is, is Jesus this Savior? Is He the Savior King that was promised? Able to take away not only physical ailments, but deal with the spiritual ailments of our hearts. Can Jesus do this? In the first account with the leper, we ask the question, is he willing? First, he has to be willing. He has to have the compassion to want to heal us. And we saw that he is. He is willing. Compassion actually moves God, not away from the sinner. Compassion moves God to touch the unclean, to heal the disease, which is a great allusion to holy God stepping down from the throne of heaven, becoming a man and walking amongst us. And not just living a perfect life, but dying as a sacrifice to cleanse us from our sin and raising from the dead, proving victorious over sin and death. Is God willing? Yes, He is. He is willing. He's compassionate. He is merciful. He sympathizes with you and I and our weaknesses, even the weaknesses of our flesh. He is willing. The second question we ask in the second account, is He able is he, able, is he able? What kind of power are we talking about here? Is this just a, a crazy magic trick? Or is this pointing to divine power? God-like power. Is he able? And then we move to the account of the centurion and the centurion's slave. So look down at verse 5 with me. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Now, a centurion is very different from the leper. The leper is an ostracized Jew. The centurion is a noble Gentile. The leper was cast out under Jewish authority. This centurion is above Jewish authority. He's a soldier of Rome. He was placed in this region of Capernaum on Rome's behalf to ensure that you know, order is kept and there's allegiance and loyalty to the Roman Empire. This is a man of influence. This is a man with great power and great authority. And this contrast of characters, just to point out, I think this goes to show that it doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your social class. Sickness touches all of us. Sickness touches the elite and the peasants. And we're all powerless, utterly powerless over sickness. This man is just as desperate as a leper. It's not just a poor man's problem. It's a privileged man's problem. Sickness touches all of our lives. It's a reminder for all of us. And so the centurion looks to Jesus, just like the leper did, and he appeals to him, he pleads with him, but he's not asking for healing himself. He's asking for the healing of his servant. The healing of another. Now, I think this is a good uh, place for us to pause and recognize that uh, the gospel author Luke records the same story in Luke chapter 7. But there's one significant difference between Luke's account and Matthew's account. In Luke's account, the centurion sends messengers to speak to Jesus on his behalf. As you see in Matthew's account, it looks as if 
In Matthew's story, the centurion came himself. How do we reconcile the differences when we see this in the Gospels? Well, first, you've got to realize that the Gospel authors, they harmonize together. They don't contradict. They tell two different angles on the story. But why does Matthew leave out the messengers in his account? There's two reasons I'll, I'll give to you, and I think it's important to establish this at the beginning. First, the first reason that Matthew leaves the messengers out is that in the first century, when a man of authority sent messengers, ambassadors, on his behalf, to speak on his behalf, those messengers carried the authority, the urgency, and the tone of the person who sent them. They, they literally speak the words of the centurion, and they took their job seriously. So it's as if the centurion was speaking face to face. That's how serious the job of the messenger was. This was no game of telephone. They didn't mess things up in translation. These are the centurion's words. And so it is as if the centurion spoke these words to Jesus himself. The, other, the second reason is the difference in purpose between the gospel author Luke and the gospel author Matthew. They write a similar story but with a different aim Luke is trying to create an orderly account. Uh, he, is, he pays close attention to the details of the events because he's, he's providing a historical record of what happened. Matthew's aim is just slightly different. Matthew's aim is to prove to you and I that Jesus is the king. And so Matthew, in some cases, cuts the fat, if you will, sharpens out the details to emphasize the message, the content. And so it's really important for you to see in Matthew's account are the words that are spoken. The words are important. So we need to pay attention to what the centurion says and what Jesus says in response. So let's look down then and look at what the centurion says in verse 6. Matthew chapter 8, verse 6. He says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So the centurion is asking on behalf of his servant, but you've got to see that underneath this word servant, he doesn't use the typical word for servant, doulos. He uses pais, which could also be translated, my boy. This centurion has a love for his servant. He says, my boy is, is lying paralyzed at home. Luke tells us that this servant was of great value to the centurion. He tells us, includes that the, the elders spoke highly of the centurion. They said he's a worthy man who loves the Jewish nation. He's a compassionate man. He's a merciful man. He's not a tyrant leader, but he actually helped build their synagogue. Now, surely this centurion, a man who could love a foreign nation, a foreign people, would love one of his own in his own household. He would treat his slaves with respect. He's actually a man of compassion and sympathy toward his slave. But it doesn't matter how compassionate you are, how sympathetic you are to those who are hurting. This man is not able to heal him. Of all the power that the centurion have, and as much compassion as he has for this poor servant boy of his, he can't help him. And so he goes to Jesus. A man with the power, the ability to heal him. Now we're not told exactly what the disease is, but we know it's bad because it's resulted in paralysis. He's bedridden. 
And furthermore, it says in, in our uh, translation that uh, he's suffering terribly. The, the word actually in Greek, it means he's, he's being tortured awfully. It's awful torture that this servant is going through. So it's really bad. It's very urgent. The question is, is Jesus willing and able to heal him? Will Jesus help this centurion, this noble elite, in the same way that he helped the leper? Will he help a Gentile? Look at what Jesus says in verse 7. He said to him, I will come and heal him. I don't want to rush past the generosity of the Lord Jesus. He stops on his way. Here's this uh, urgent plea from the centurion, and he's immediately willing to go to him. Again, here's the compassion of God. A, a, a God who sympathizes, who, who bears our burdens, who, who feels our pain, and doesn't move away from the hurting, he moves toward them. The compassion of Christ is unbelievable. It's unmatched. He is willing. And he even, in Luke's account, it shows us he's on his way to the centurion's house. But look at what the centurion says in response. Verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. If you like to mark your Bible or underline important phrases and words, I would love I'll just have you underline, I am not worthy. Or circle it. Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word. You can underline circle. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. I am not worthy. Only say the word. These are two markers of faith. Significant attributes of true faith. Recognizing your unworthiness in absolute confidence in the Word of God. Do you have these markers of your faith? Do you recognize your unworthiness? And do you have absolute confidence in the Word and promises of God? He says first, I am not worthy to have you come into my house. Luke's account uh, in, in his message, the centurion adds this. By the way, that's why I didn't come to you in the first place. I'm not even worthy to be in your presence, is what he says. The centurion recognizes that this is a holy one. This is not just any other man. This isn't just a good teacher. Jesus Christ is holy. And I am not. I am unholy. I am not worthy, he says. You need to mark this. No man who has received faith also doesn't also recognize his unworthiness. Let me say it positively. If you have faith, you recognize you don't deserve it. You never did. If you have faith, you must recognize you didn't deserve it. It was a gift. You recognize your unworthiness. You recognize, I am poor in spirit. I am spiritually depraved. There's nothing I can do to earn favor from God. That's what this centurion recognizes. He recognizes what the blessed recognize in Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Faith is a gift from God. It's His mercy and His grace 
that grant you faith, grant you salvation. Those who have faith don't carry it with a chip on their shoulder. They don't burst into the church doors with their chests up and head held high like the Pharisees saying, look at me and all these good things I do. You know what faith looks like? The tax collector who stands far off. He's unable to lift his head and he beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The person of faith recognizes they're unworthy, just like this centurion. It's the first fruit of, of genuine faith. Like I've said before, if, if you don't come to God admitting you're desperate in your sins, then you don't come to God. Let me say that again. If you didn't come to God recognizing you're desperate in your sins, then you have not come to God. Every sinner recognizing the holiness of God will recognize they're desperate in their sins. They don't come in with their head held high, but admitting they're a sinner with their head low, saying, God, I'm not worthy. That's what the centurion recognized. So the first significant feature of this man's faith was no confidence in his own worth. Zero confidence in his own worth. The second feature of his faith was absolute confidence in God's word. Absolute confidence in Jesus' word. He says, only say the word. Jesus is recognizing some, or sorry, not Jesus, this centurion is recognizing something about Jesus that even the crowds didn't understand. Remember, after Jesus spoke at the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds walked away and they were astonished. They, he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. This is a man above the scribes. And the centurion is taking it a level up. It, he's not recognizing Jesus just as a man with limited authority. But his words have unlimited authority, unlimited power. He can just speak and this man's slave would be healed. This centurion recognizes divine power in Jesus' words. I mean, this centurion with just a, just a confession here is recognizing that this man could have been the man who brought forth creation with a word in Genesis 1. This could be the one who calmed the storm with a word. Matthew 8.16, he casts out the demons with a word. This is the man who raised Lazarus from the dead with a word. This is the one prophesied in Psalm 107, who sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Jesus is the manifestation of what Isaiah the prophet writes about in Isaiah 55. God's word doesn't return empty. It accomplishes His purpose and it will succeed. God's Word has power. The centurion recognizes this power in Jesus. He goes on to say, I understand authority because I'm kind of a person in authority. Look at this comparison he makes. He says, I'm a commander. I'm under the authority of a commander above me, but I have a lot of soldiers under me. A centurion, actually a hundred soldiers at least underneath him so he's a man with authority he says i say to one go and he goes and to the other come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it the centurion understands power but only as a commander with limited authority he sees jesus as a commander with unlimited authority listen jesus i know you can command sickness like i command soldiers 
You can tell sickness and disease to go and come, like I tell soldiers to come and come, go and come. You have unnatural, supernatural power. I only have natural power, limited. The Roman centurion shows extraordinary faith in just the word of Jesus Christ. He recognizes his word has the power to save, revive, heal, and restore. And therefore, the centurion's only hope in this difficult situation is the word of God. He's hanging on Jesus' words as if his life or the life of his servant depends on it. That's faith. That's faith. Faith is trusting in God's word especially manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you have such confidence in God's word? Do you trust his promises like the centurion does? Do you trust the power of his word that no matter how difficult your circumstances are, you're going to hang on his word, hang on his promises as if your life depend on, depends on it? Because it ultimately does. Will you trust his word? When everything else fails... Is your absolute confidence in your own worth and what you can do or in God's word and what he can do? This Roman centurion, this Gentile, shows faith like Noah did. He shows faith like Abraham, like Isaac, Jacob, like Joseph, or, uh, like, yeah, like Joseph, like Moses, like David, Daniel, and the other great men of faith in history. Again, it's a faith not in your own effort, in your own worth. It's a faith, an absolute trust in God's word. Jesus, in response to this, he's not offended. When the centurion says, no, 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 don't come into my house. This is not the centurion refusing hospitality. He said, I'm not worthy. And and Jesus is blown away by this man's faith. The text says he marvels at it. By the way, this is the only time that Jesus marvels at faith. And it's a Gentile, not a Jew. He marvels. Mark tells us that Jesus marveled another time, but he marveled at unbelief. He couldn't believe his hometown, Nazareth, would reject him. But now he marvels at the faith of this Gentile. It's almost as if Jesus... You know, the messengers of the centurion stop him on his way to the to the centurion's house for this message. Hey, uh, he doesn't want you to come because he feels you're unwor- he's unworthy for you to be in his presence. And this is what he said. And Jesus goes, okay, wait a minute. I need to tell the crowd something. I'm going to make a point of this. He, he pauses the message. He looks to the crowd and he says, I want to tell you something. He says, truly, I tell you. This is an important declaration he's about to make. And he's making it to the crowds that are following him. He says, no one in Israel have I found such faith. That's an indictment on the crowds. Probably the majority of them of Israel. If anyone had reason to be confident, absolutely confident in the word of God, it was the people of Israel. And they're missing it. We're in our Old Testament class and and we went to the divided kingdom this morning and talked about how the prophets spoke judgment and the curses of God on the people of Israel because they had disregarded God's word. After all that God brought them through, after saving them out of 
Egypt, after preserving them even through their disobedience, giving them kings, even though they asked with the wrong motive, and, and granting the promises of Abraham, they had this flourishing land and this great economy under the monarchy. And yet they continue to disobey, they continue to worship idols, and they continue to forfeit the blessing that God promised them under the old covenant. And even in that, God promises a new covenant. And his promises are sure. And he keeps them. And he has fulfilled every word that he's spoken. Not one word has returned void. If anybody could trust God and his word, it was the people of Israel. The people who received the covenants. Even in front of them, they see the word of God unfolding before their very eyes. Here's Jesus. He has the promised line lineage. He was born of a virgin. Here's a perfect man. He's speaking with authority over the scribes. He's performing divine miracles. This, this is the Christ. But they don't get it. See, they are fascinated with Jesus because they're following him. But they don't have faith in Jesus. And there's a big difference between fascination and faith. There are a lot of Christians today who are fascinated with Jesus, but they don't have life-surrendering faith in Jesus. Fascination is easy because there's no strings attached. You can be fascinated from afar. Fascination won't cost you anything. You don't need to be desperate to be fascinated. In fact, you can still be self-sufficient and fascinated. You can be self-centered and fascinated. You can be self-pleasing and still fascinated with Jesus. But not faith. Faith depends. Faith trusts. Faith doesn't come worthy. Faith comes unworthy. Faith admits that I am powerless and only He is powerful. And everything that I am trusts on His Word. My whole life depends on Jesus. Jesus isn't another Gandhi. He's not another Mother Teresa or St. Francis of Assisi. He's not a magician like David Blaine or an entertainer like P.T. Barnum. He is God. He is God in the flesh. And He is able. He has divine power that no man can fathom. He can do what, with His words what no man can do with His hands. He is able and the centurion is seeing it. He gets it, and the people of Israel didn't. And so Jesus makes a powerful connection in this event to the Abrahamic covenant. Look at, uh, look at verse 11. He continues. He says, I tell you, making a declaration here, he says, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is a reference to the, uh, to the patriarchs, to the Jewish patriarchs, and the covenant that God made with Abraham. At the end of that covenant in Genesis 12, 3, he promises Abraham blessing, he promises Abraham's offspring blessing, and then thirdly, he promises international blessing. He says, in you, Abraham, through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. See, the scope of God's redemptive plan was bigger than Israel. It includes the Gentiles. People like you and I. Without Jewish heritage. Maybe some of you have it. I don't. I'm a Gentile. 
And so I am particularly blessed by this inclusion. He told Abraham, you'll be a father of a multitude of nations, not just of the nation of Israel, which he has promises to, but a further promise to more nations. From the very beginning, God's redemptive plan had a greater scope than just the salvation of Israel. The Gentiles are included, and that is good news for you and I. Very good news. This Gentile centurion Jesus is using as a living example of this inclusion. Look at this is happening. This man, this Gentile has faith that the Jewish patriarchs had. And he's included in this blessing. He said, I'll tell you. And by the way, this is just the beginning of it because Jesus says many will come from east and west. Many Gentiles. And they'll be reclining at the table with the covenant fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's a beautiful picture of a great feast in the lighted halls of the kingdom. And it's the picture of a diverse crowd eating a meal with the Jewish patriarchs. We have Asian men and women sitting at this table. We have African men and women sitting at this table. We have Anglo men and women sitting at this table. Hispanic men and women sitting at this table, and so on and so forth. A beautiful array of colors and ethnicity and background and culture and languages lounging at the table with the Jewish patriarchs. What do you think, how do you think that Jewish readers of Matthew's gospel would take this? Offensively. They wouldn't like it. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Redemption is bigger than you. I'm including these people in this table. I'm including these people in the blessing. And, and they're wondering how. How can all these different ethnicities be sitting at the table with our patriarchs, with our fathers, biological fathers? Jesus says, I tell you how. One word, faith. That's it. Faith. The faith that the centurion had is the same faith that your fathers had. Abraham. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's by faith. It's always been. Genesis 15. It's the one word in common for all who enter the kingdom of heaven. We may speak different languages. We may be raised in different geographies. We may look different, cook different. But we have one thing in common. We have faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And it is by faith that we become sons of Abraham. Heirs according to this promise. Romans 4.16. Galatians 3.29. You must, regardless of your ethnic background, you must believe in Jesus to be saved. The common message and the common response of salvation. Jesus is making this connection to show us that this is how you respond to Jesus. This is the only way. You can't be fascinated by him. You have to have faith in him. So I ask you, do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? Do you have faith like the centurion? Or are you merely fascinated by him? Are you fascinated by his miracle working? He's a good teacher. He's a positive influence. He's a convenient genie. Or are you surrendering to him in faith? So Jesus talks about this incredible inclusion of the Gentiles, the Gentiles who believe, but he also makes an incredible exclusion of the Jews who do not believe. Look at verse 13. He says, while the sons of the kingdom, this is a reference to Israel, who reject Christ, 
They will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A Jewish heritage doesn't give you a free pass to the kingdom. You must still believe. You must still enter through the one door. The one door and you enter by faith. Without faith, this is your end. Not the lighted halls of a food court, but outer darkness. Not the place of celebration, chomping on food, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth that are in agonizing pain. This is a description, an illustration of hell, everlasting torment, the lake of fire. The end for a Jew who rejects Christ is the same end for the pagan who worships another god. And the evil one who deceives and dissuades all the sons of darkness. Jesus is indicting, condemning the current generation, this generation that he came to who rejected him, who didn't believe. Of course, God keeps his promises and there's always a remnant. There's always a few who do believe. But this generation who rejects him are cast out. They do not receive the promises of the covenant. So again, who are you? Are you fascinated with Jesus or do you believe in him? Do you have faith in him? Do you believe in his word, his promises that those will be fulfilled? And you're hanging for life on those promises because your life does depend on it. He is able. He is the only one who's able. Finally, this third uh, story, this third encounter, Jesus and Peter's mother-in-law. The question is, is he the savior? Is he the Savior? Is he able? Yes, he is able. We saw that. In fact, look at what he says to the centurion in verse 13. Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. He's absolutely able with his word to heal the slave. And look at 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. And he touched her hand. And the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Jesus performs another miraculous healing. By the way, in each of these healings, there are, there are visible signs of immediate restoration and health. Jesus isn't going around taking away headaches, okay, or chronic back pain, or a little, a little soreness in the, in the bot, in the thigh, or, or whatever. Jesus is showing his power. These are, he's doing the impossible, the supernatural. But he's doing it for a reason. He's doing it for a reason. Jesus didn't come to just take away physical ailments. He came to do something beyond that. And with each of these stories, the way Matthew organizes them, it, it makes a greater and greater point. There, there's something bigger going on here. There's, there's a more significant thing that's happening than Jesus just taking away physical ailments. And Matthew finally lands the plane in verse 17 and tells you why. In verse 17, look at what Matthew says. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Here's the point of it all. 
the reality is that these healings function like a flashing arrow that tell everybody Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior that was promised by the prophets. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He's the Savior. You know, the healing of the leper was like that sign that you see a mile out. Jesus is the Messiah. Turn in faith in one mile. The healing of the centurion's servant was the sign at a half a mile out. Jesus is the Messiah. Turn in faith in a half mile. Now, here's the off-ramp. Here's the beeline that Matthew makes. Jesus is the Messiah. Turn in faith now. This is Him. This is the suffering servant that was promised by the Isaiah the prophet. Turning your Bibles back to Isaiah 53. The prophet Isaiah promises a suffering servant, an anointed servant of God that would come and make atonement for sin. He's been talking about this guy for a couple chapters now. This this servant would bring forth justice to the nations. He would be gentle, kind, and merciful to those suffering. And he would open the eyes of the blind and he'd free the prisoners from darkness. That's all talked about in chapter 42. At the end of 52, he's one who would act wisely. And then we get to chapter 53. And we see that this servant is going to suffer. And why this servant suffers. Look at verse 3. The servant would be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, and he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This anointed servant, it appears as though he would come in victorious at first and just automatically establish justice and rule as king. But then Isaiah turns to show us he's going to be despised first. He's going to suffer first. You should expect this coming. And then verse 4, the verse that's quoted by Matthew, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Matthew makes it a point to put sickness and disease in there, but that surely is a grief and it surely is a sorrow. And notice Jesus takes those on upon himself vicariously. He takes the burdens, the sin and the Well, the sickness first of man upon his own shoulders, and he bears it for us. But this reality of taking physical ailments points to a greater reality of vicarious substitution. Look at verse 5. Here's the reason he suffers for us. And here's the greater reality that Matthew's pointing to. He was pierced for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for what? Our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by His wounds were healed. There's a greater substitution happening here. He's not just taking on physical ailments. He's taking on our spiritual sickness, our spiritual disease. He's taking our sins upon His own shoulders and bearing them on our behalf, paying the penalty for our sin. This is the gospel. All we, look at verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb, a sacrificial lamb that's led to the slaughter. And like sheep before its shearers, he's silent. So he opened not his mouth. And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, he's innocent. And there's no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord, Yahweh, to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Once he's made that offering, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Matthew's point is this. Jesus is this servant. Jesus is the Savior. More than just taking away physical ailments, these healings prove that He's the Messiah who takes away sin. He's the one who suffers in your place. He doesn't just sympathize or have compassion from afar. He comes and He bears the weight of our sinfulness and, the, and He bears the, the payment upon His own shoulders and suffers in our place on the cross. This is the Gospel. This is what you must believe in order to have your sins atoned for. To become righteous. He's righteous, not me. He's worthy. I'm unworthy. I've sinned and fallen short of a holy God. And Jesus suffered in my place. He is the Christ. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. I need to trust wholeheartedly in Him and Him alone for salvation. If you have not done this, you must do this today. This is faith. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. Is He the Savior? Yes, indeed He is. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah the prophet. This bridge that Matthew builds is so important, especially to his Jewish audience, because many would reject Him as the servant. Many of Israel would be blind. They would miss it. But I'll tell you who didn't. This Gentile centurion. Peter's mother-in-law, the leper. The outcast, according to the Jewish people, the outcasts, those that they hated, despised, and rejected, similar to Christ. How about you? Are you fascinated with Jesus or do you believe? Do you have faith and trust in Him? Faith in His Word like your life depends on it. Will you respond like Israel or will you respond like the Gentile centurion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are our only hope and Your words are powerful. Your promise is faithful. Your word does not return void. It is not empty. It accomplishes what its, what its purpose is. And, and Your word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the promises of old has come. And He did not come first to rule and reign, but He came first to suffer and serve. And He did so by offering His life as a sacrifice for our sins. God, and I thank You so much for Christ. Who He is and what He did. And I thank You that He's ascended... He's rose again from the dead victorious. He's ascended to the right hand. And He's coming back to establish justice. To fulfill the promise. To rule in the, on the throne of David. To establish this kingdom that we can enjoy by faith. I pray for the people here, God, that those who are of faith, that they would be warmed, they would be comforted and encouraged in their faith by these examples. And I pray for those who who don't have faith, that they would believe in Christ today, that they'd repent of their sins and trust wholeheartedly in Jesus as the only way of salvation. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.